Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. We'll get to the recording of this Sunday's message in just a moment, but first I want to ask, are you a listener who does not attend in person on Sundays, but who would be interested in meeting with other St. Paul's listeners in your area for a small group? Right now we have a couple people connected to St. Paul's who live in the New Haven shoreline area who would like to start an in-person small group you know, to meet for fellowship and discussion of the previous week's message. And so if you happen to be from the New Haven shoreline area and you would be interested in that, please email me to let me know. Ryan at stpaulswired.org. That's stpaulswired.org. And if you're not in that area, but you're in another area and you'd be interested in meeting with other listeners there, Email me to let me know what area you're from, and maybe we can put something together. In fact, even if you're not interested in a small group, but you're just a regular listener who doesn't attend in person, we'd love to hear from you just to know that you're out there, because uh, we don't really know how many people listen to this. So if you're willing, we'd love to hear from you. And as always, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. So good morning. Uh, we are now in week six in our series, Walking in the Light, Lessons from First John. And uh, I forgot my clicker. Oh, there it is. Okay. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so uh, week six, and we're picking up right where we left off last week, which is uh, chapter four, verse one. We're... Uh, we're going to read every single verse of this letter. Usually when we do a, uh, an epistle here at St. Paul's, I have this thing where I just, I want to read every verse. And um, that means that some of these sermons might sound a little bit repetitive, because 1 John is pretty repetitive. John keeps going back to the same points. But I think that's okay. I think a little repetition is all right. Sometimes we need to hear something multiple times to really receive it, right? I, Sarah would be able to tell you this is true of me. I, sometimes I need to hear the same thing many times. So, uh, 1 John 4, starting in verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Dear friends, let us love one another. 
For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. So as I reflected on this passage this week, there are two words that kept coming to my mind. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Now what do those words mean? Well, I suppose that if you ask the average person, uh, what, what does the word orthodox mean? I could be wrong, but I think the average person just asked on the street would say something like, well, isn't that some kind of religion? And they would probably be thinking of what's called the Eastern Orthodox Church in one of its forms. So like Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Romanian Orthodox. That word Orthodox has come to be associated with the Eastern European branch of the Christian Church. Uh, Just as Catholic is a word that's come to be associated with the Western branch of the Christian church that is uh, based in Rome, okay? And that's, that's a little unfortunate because all Christians should be Orthodox and Catholic, whether they are Eastern Orthodox or not, and whether they are Roman Catholic or not. This church is not a Roman Catholic church, because we are not under the authority of the bishop in Rome, the Pope, right? And we're also not an Eastern Orthodox Church, because we're not under the authority of the Eastern Orthodox bishops. But we are, or hopefully we all aspire to be, both Orthodox and Catholic, at least in the original sense of those words. Every week before communion, Uh, When we confess the Apostles' Creed, we say that we believe in one holy Catholic Church. And I realize that may be confusing for some of you, um, but the reason we say that is not because we are confessing uh, our belonging to the Roman Catholic Church, but in the sense of what Catholic has always meant, which means universal. So when we say we believe in the holy Catholic Church, we are saying we believe in a church that is for everyone who is willing to join, Um, and that it is not limited to a particular language group or nationality or ethnicity or culture. It is for every tribe, nation, language. That's what we believe. That's what we confess when we say that the church is Catholic. And the true church is also orthodox because the literal meaning of orthodox is correct teaching. Ortho means correct Dox teaching, right? The orthodontist puts braces on your teeth to correct them, right? The orthopedist helps correct your body after it's gone through an injury, right? And if I've never heard anyone use this word orthodoxist, 
But if they did, it would mean someone who helps to correct your thinking about God. Right? So, if you are an Orthodox Christian, you are a Christian who affirms and believes the essential teachings of the Christian church. The same teachings that the apostles first shared. And then orthopraxy means correct practice. So living correctly, living a life rightly, right? So someone is orthodox if they believe correctly, and they are orthoprax if they live correctly. And what John is really emphasizing in this practice, in, sorry, in this passage, is that the church is supposed to practice being both orthodox and orthoprax. That is essential. And he starts the passage by emphasizing correct beliefs, right? Orthodoxy. So starting in verse 1, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Do not believe every spirit. Now, when we hear the word spirit there, you shouldn't think of individual human beings. And you shouldn't think of, like, demonic spirits or something like that. Um, what you should think of are the ideas that are getting passed around in a culture. And uh, one way of putting it, this would be the isms that are popular in our day. Uh, every time in history has its isms. Right? There are political and social isms like fascism, communism, colonialism, militarism, pacifism, non-interventionism, libertarianism. And there are theological isms like Calvinism, Arminianism, dispensationalism. So every ism has to do with what people believe. Some isms are generally good, some isms are not so good. And you want to think of these isms as the spirits of the age. And John is saying, don't believe every ism. Before you embrace these political, social, religious isms, test them. Which means, be thoughtful about them. Be discerning about them. What tends to happen is that people just sort of embrace the water that they're swimming in. Whatever they're used to. They just assume it. John says, don't do that. And he says, when it comes to discerning whether a spirit is orthodox Christianity, then you have to ask the question, does the spirit say that Christ came in the flesh from God? Does it recognize Jesus came in the flesh? Now, what does it mean to recognize that Jesus came in the flesh. Well, there's at least two aspects to that statement there. The first is that Jesus pre-existed his earthly appearance, which is a way of saying that he's divine, right? Jesus cannot come to earth unless he existed in some sense prior to coming to earth, right? So this is an affirmation of Jesus' eternality, right? His divinity, his oneness with God. And then the second idea in that statement is that the eternal one, God, really did become human. 
He took on flesh, right? He hungered, he thirsted, he felt pain. It wasn't just some sort of illusion. It wasn't like Jesus was a hologram. He was really enfleshed. And John is saying you must test spiritual teachers by what they say about Jesus. And if they deny either Jesus' divinity or his humanity, then they do not pass the test of orthodoxy, of, of coming from God, right? Of correct belief. Now, I, I want to clarify here. This is, I think, a very important clarification. Again, spirit is not the same thing as person. And that's important to recognize because some people will, will hear this test of orthodoxy and they'll think, well, if somebody affirms that Jesus came in the flesh, now I know that they're trustworthy. No, no. <laughs> there are plenty of people out there who are willing to affirm that Jesus is fully God and fully human, but they're actually not trustworthy people. Orthodoxy is not a test of whether someone is trustworthy. Only a test of orthopraxy can tell you if somebody is trustworthy, right? I heard a phrase once, uh, evangelical insta-trust. That means we, we just totally give someone our trust if they use the right buzzwords, right? And we want to be more discerning than that, okay? So again, John is not saying, here's the test of whether an individual is trustworthy. He's saying, here is the test of whether a spirit, an idea about God, is from God, right? Does it affirm Jesus as fully God, fully human? Important distinction. <clears throat> okay, so this reminds me, not too long ago, I met someone, and they asked what I did for a living, and I said I was a pastor, and um, they said that they were a churchgoer, that uh, they attend a church, they really like their church, have gone there for decades, and they said, uh, it's a very good church, we have lots of people from lots of different faiths, we don't, we don't care what you believe. Now, I've actually had a couple people say something like that to me over the last few years when I tell them that I'm a pastor. I have a church. It's a great church. We don't care what you believe. And to be honest, on the few occasions that this has happened, I've never really known what to say. And um, I, I just kind of smile and nod and, and then afterwards wonder, what would have been a good way to handle that? Because, I don't know about you, but I just, I'm not into getting into debates, especially about what people believe about ultimate things the moment I meet them. Um, I just don't think it's the best way to go about getting to know somebody. Um, so I tend not to debate unless somebody really seems to want to. Um, but if I were to speak freely in that situation, just take the filter off, I would say something like this. Well, you say that your church doesn't care about what you believe, but I've got a hard time believing that. I bet there are certain ideas that would definitely not be welcome in your church. Certain ideas about, you know, human rights and, and justice and politics, I bet are considered non-negotiable in your church. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. And then, if I was speaking really freely, 
I might say something like, well, can I ask you a question? If I were to speak at your church on Sunday morning, and I were to say, well, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. If I were to say that, how would that be received? And I'm not sure, but I suspect that they would say, well, that wouldn't really be welcome because we are a church that includes all faiths. And then if I was speaking really freely, I would say, but you haven't included mine. Now, you know, this person's church might be very supportive, might be a very loving, nice community. Uh, it might be some, a place that does good in the world, and praise God for that. But if this person described their church accurately, I don't think it really qualifies as a church. Because the church is supposed to be the assembly of people who share belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you remember that moment in the Gospels when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds by saying, Peter, blessed are you. You are a rock. And on this rock, I will build my, my what? My church. Right? So in other words, Peter, you are going to be like a rock in the foundation of the church that I am building because of what you just said. Because you recognize that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. So if a church doesn't recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, well, it's not the church that Christ came to build. Right? Christ said he's building a church, on those who recognize that he is the son of the living God, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So if a church doesn't recognize that Jesus is the son of the living God, it's not the church that Christ came to build. Maybe a friendly community. The potlucks might be tasty and the bingo might be fun. But it's not the church that Christ came to build. And it's probably not the kind of assembly that is going to be able to stand when the powers of hell come knocking. Orthodoxy matters. What we believe matters. Now, does that mean that you have to be a Christian to walk into the doors of this church? Of course not. You are welcome to be here regardless of what you believe. But not because what you believe doesn't matter but because it does, because it matters so much that I want you to be here regardless of what you think so that you can hear about the God that is revealed through Jesus Christ and have an opportunity to receive and experience him. Did you notice that John refers to Jesus in this passage as God's one and only son? One and only son. Where am I? I got all lost here. Anyway, he calls him his one and only son. That's language that John uses in his gospel as well. 
right? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of who? The one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So orthodoxy says that God has only one son, meaning there's only one person who ever walked the earth that was the incarnation of God, that was God in the flesh. Of course, all human beings are made in the image of God, but that is not the same thing as being God. Those are different things. And only one human being was truly God in the flesh. And this is an essential part of the message that Christ's church is called to proclaim and steward and pass on generation to generation. And if it doesn't do that, then the church just withers up and dies. Or at least that's generally what I see happening. God took on flesh uniquely in the person of Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son. Again, if a church does not believe that, it might be a nice place, but it's not the church that Christ came to build. Now, did you notice that John used a pretty strong word to describe those who deny that Jesus came in the flesh, right? He uses the word antichrist. And John uses that word several times in 1 John. And every time, it's not to say, hey, look out for the big, bad, villainous man that's coming at the end of history, the, the Antichrist. Every time he uses the word, he instead encourages them to recognize the spirit of Antichrist that is already at work in the world. And it doesn't just show up in some villainous, powerful guy at the end of history. It shows up in every spirit that refuses to recognize that Jesus came in the flesh. So orthodoxy matters. If it's not orthodox, it's antichrist. Harsh word, right? But that's what John says. But if all the church is is orthodox, then it hasn't yet been faithful. Because as John keeps emphasizing, orthodoxy has to be accompanied by orthopraxy. And orthopraxy, put as simply as possible, is loving one another. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. It doesn't matter if we have all of our doctrine exactly right if we don't put it into practice. If God's one and only Son is Jesus, then Jesus reveals who God is, what God is like, and Jesus reveals that God is love. And if God is love, then we should be people of love. This is not an issue of secondary concern, right? This is not less important than orthodoxy. It is just as important. And frankly, it might even be a little more important. I mean, let me ask you, would you rather live with someone who loves really well or who has perfect doctrine? I mean, I just think that's a no-brainer right? I want to live with someone who loves well. You know, and this is why the Apostle Paul said, it doesn't matter if you have, can fathom all mysteries and possess all knowledge. If you have not love, you have nothing. Some people, <clears throat> when they're looking for a church, they're just very fixated on what the church believes. And they want very clear statements on everything that the church believes, right? 
And for this kind of person, usually their concern is not just, oh, is this church affirming the essentials of apostolic Christianity, right? You know, what we say in the Apostles' Creed. Christ came in the flesh, died for our sins, rose again bodily, ascended into heaven, and is coming again. They're not only concerned about that. They usually are more particular than that, right? They want to know, well, does this church believe the same things as me about eschatology, you know, about how the future is going to play out, what role the millennium has, how you interpret that, you know, whether there's a rapture or not a rapture, all that kind of stuff. Um, what does this church believe about the opening uh, chapters of Genesis and how literal that is and whether how we synthesize that with science or reject science? What does it believe about that? What does this church believe about politics and what political candidate you should support, right? What does this church believe about environmentalism, whether we should care about that or not, et cetera, et cetera? And here's what I find ironic. In my experience, people who are very fixated on all those kinds of particulars about what I would call secondary and tertiary kind of matters, often they don't seem very concerned about things that the New Testament really gives priority to. Like, they're usually not asking questions like, well, is this a church where people generally are forgiving of one another? Because, you know, Jesus said that if we're not willing to forgive one another, then our Heavenly Father won't forgive us. So that's serious. Uh, and then they, they don't usually ask questions like, well, th is this the kind of church that cares for widows and orphans in their distress? Because James says that that's the kind of religion that God considers pure and faultless. Or is this the kind of church where people serve one another in love? Because, you know, that was one of the last things that Jesus said before he went to the cross. He's, he told his disciples, you must wash each other's feet. You're not above your master, and this is the kind of thing that your master does. So people like this don't usually ask, oh, is this the kind of church where I'm going to have opportunities to serve other people in love? When people look for churches with a focus on orthopraxy rather than just orthodoxy, that really benefits the body of Christ. Orthodoxy matters, but orthopraxy matters just as much. So I'll finish with this thought. There's a lot of talk these days about the decline of church in America. Uh, church attendance has been declining generally across denominations over the last, well, generation. Um, the percentage of people in this country who profess faith in Jesus Christ is declining. Um, and so this sparks the question, you know, how do we turn this around? How do we reverse the trend? And some people, I've noticed in these discussions, they really want to emphasize orthodoxy. The church has to really teach the basics, teach them well, maybe more than just the basics, right? It's all about teaching the right things. And then you get people on the other side of the spectrum, they're like, the church just has done a terrible job of loving and embodying Christ's uh, practices. And that that's really just needs to be our concern. It's just orthopraxy. And we need to let John remind us that both are essential, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. 
Orthodoxy without orthopraxy is not the church that Christ came to build, and orthopraxy without orthodoxy is not the church that Christ came to build. But here's the thing. The question, how do we turn this around, is actually the wrong question. It's not the question we should be asking. The question we should be asking is, how do we stay faithful to Christ? How do we stay faithful to proclaim what Christ wants us to proclaim and to live the way that Christ wants us to live? Now, if we do that, and that results in the trend being reversed and the masses wanting to become Christian and follow Christ, awesome. But if it doesn't, that's okay. Because we're doing what we're supposed to do. We're being faithful. You know, I don't know this for sure, but it might be that if churches really lean into orthodoxy but just neglect orthopraxy, they might grow like crazy. Or maybe if we just focus on orthopraxy and just don't care what people believe, uh, like that person I met, their, their church, maybe then the churches will grow like crazy. I doubt it, but it's possible. But our main concern should not be the masses coming into the churches, right? Our main concern should be, are we being faithful to Christ and then let the rest of that work itself out, right? Are we... Are we teaching what is true? And are we doing what is right? That's what matters. Amen? Lord, uh, we pray that you would help us to be uh, the kind of church that you came to build. Help us to be a church where uh, we believe what is true and we practice uh, genuine love, love for one another, love even for enemy, Lord. Um, it is not an easy calling, and uh, even when we're doing it well, there are still times where we trip and fall. But Lord, help us to grow more and more into the church that you came to build. And Lord, we just thank you and praise you that that church that you came to build, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Jesus' name, amen.